Well, around 900 BC, <clears throat> King Solomon wrote these words. A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. Proverbs 18.2. Those words are as true today in our culture as they were when they were written nearly 3,000 years ago in a culture that could not be any more different than ours. Because, as I've said many times before, although human culture constantly changes, human nature never changes. In fact, all you have to do uh, in our modern, advanced, enlightened, forward-thinking, progressive society that we're all living in is to turn on your television or computer or cell phone and with nothing more than a cursory glance at the news media or social media or entertainment media, you will quickly discover the relevance those words still hold today. We're living in an increasingly divided nation with uh, so many issues that separate us, uh, politically of course, socially, religiously, morally, philosophically. It seems there are as many opinions on all of the issues that divide us as there are people. And of course the fact that uh, the fact that everyone has an opinion on just about everything all the time is certainly nothing new. It's just that with the advent of social media, we now all know what everyone's opinion is on everything all the time, whether you're asking for it or not. And obviously, uh, look, it's not wrong to have opinions about important issues, and it's not wrong to express those opinions when they're based on definable principles that you can clearly articulate which really is paramount when we talk about expressing your views on life and the world to other people because when, when two people express opposing views, if at the same time they're both able to clearly articulate a set of defining principles that have shaped those views, those opinions or beliefs or convictions, then even if those two people completely disagree on those principles and come to altogether different conclusions, they can still have a, quite a productive, meaningful conversation and maybe even learn something from one another even if they never agree on their views or their faith or their convictions. However, if a person is passionate about an issue or a particular position or belief on any given subject without being, to, uh, being able to articulate any definable principles supporting that position or belief, what you end up with typically is someone who cannot be reasoned with, someone who is not teachable, someone who can only express to you what they believe, but not why they believe it. So you end up with a lot of passion and very little substance. A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. Now listen, I don't know if this is actually uh, more prevalent in our culture today than it has ever been before in my lifetime or if it's simply a matter of me becoming more aware of it the older I get. But either way, I have never knowingly witnessed before the sheer volume of people in our culture as I do today who seem to have a passion about something, an issue or a belief or a conviction without being able to articulate any definable principles supporting that position or belief or conviction. Before we become too critical of unbelievers who may fall into that 
category concerning maybe secular issues, we really better take a good hard look at the church in America when it comes to what we say we're passionate about. Because the reality is, there is an astounding poverty of biblical understanding among professing believers in the American church today. People who passionately believe in the Christian faith. And listen, I don't question their passion. And yet they cannot articulate even the most basic biblical principles in support of what they say they believe. It's passion without principle. And it is one of the most dangerous and prevalent problems facing the church in the modern era. People who say they're passionate about Jesus but cannot tell you what he actually taught or stood for. And so they have an idea about him, a version of him that never disagrees with them, by the way. Because the version of Jesus they're passionate about is based on their own personal preferences and ideas about life in this world rather than the principles he clearly taught in his word. Pastor, author, and theologian Timothy Keller once said, if your God never disagrees with you, you might just be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. I think that is exactly what we're seeing in the modern church today on a large scale. And as a result, you have a church with a lot of passion, and yet very little substance. And as long as everything is going well in your life, you can get by with that, not realizing there's even a problem with what you believe, where the problem shows up every time in believers' lives when you have passion without principle. The problem shows up is, is when everything is not going well. Right? If the passion you profess to have for Christ is not firmly rooted in the principles and teachings of his word, when trouble shows up in your life, and we all know it will, I'm telling you, your passion will not be enough to sustain you through it. In fact, passion without principle can get you into a lot of trouble. It can lead you and others far from Christ and what he actually taught us to follow. And in the process, you not only deceive yourself, but you grossly misrepresent Christ to those who need him the most. The truth is, horrible things have been done throughout the ages in the name of religion by people who had passion without principle. It's exactly what we're going to see in our story today as we work through the final installment of our sermon series on the book of Judges where God's people uh, were extremely passionate about being God's people. And yet there was such a great poverty of true godly principle among them that their very best attempts at doing what they thought was right in God's eyes they ended up being catastrophic failures both physically and spiritually because what they thought was right in God's eyes was actually only right in their own eyes. And without the principles of God's word guiding them, all that they had left was misguided passion. Which, by the way, is all that we have left in the church today when we neglect God's word in our own lives. We inevitably do what is right in our own eyes, and we can do that with all of the passion and conviction in the world. But if it is not rooted in the immutable, unchanging principles of the word of God, then listen, our best attempts to do what is right in God's eyes will fail miserably when measured in light of what matters eternally. And what you end up with are Christian people with a lot of passion and very little substance. That should never be 
And yet we're seeing that more and more and more in the modern church when in truth, followers of Jesus Christ should be well known. In fact, we should be famous for being the most thoughtful, articulate, and knowledgeable people when it comes to understanding the foundational principles of what we say we passionately believe in. The good news is, this is not an irreconcilable problem. It's not hopeless by any stretch as long as we, as God's people, are willing to humble ourselves and focus our passion on Him and on His Word instead of on ourselves and our own ideas. That is when the church can have more impact on this world for the cause of Christ than it has ever had before. And our passion can serve a purpose that is bigger than us and all of our ideas put together. So with all of that in mind, let's jump back into the story where we left off last week and see what we can learn about the effects that passion without principle can have in the lives of God's people. Just to catch you up in the story right before we read, in case you weren't here last week, 11 of the 12 tribes of Israel came together at a place called Mizpah. It was an ancient shrine city and from there they launched an attack against the 12th tribe of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, because of the Benjaminites' sin against a Levite and his concubine. And so the 11 tribes take an oath to cut the tribe of Benjamin off from among them and to never give any of their daughters in marriage to the Benjaminites. Again, to cut them off from the rest of Israel. And so they go to war and defeat the Benjaminites. And in the process, they apply what is known as the Karim principle, which we talked about last week, to the entire tribe, save 600 male fighters who escaped to a place called the Rock of Rimen. The Karim principle was the complete destruction of a city or a tribe or a people group. Men, uh, women, children, livestock, personal belongings, homes, you name it, under the Karim principle, everything was utterly destroyed. And yet, the problem with the Karim principle being applied to the tribe of Benjamin here was the fact that they were fellow Israelites. So God did not command the other tribes to exercise the Karim principle against one of their own tribes, but they did it anyway. Right? So this chapter, as it opens up, the war is over. The Benjaminites are defeated. There are only 600 Benjaminite men left alive from their entire, uh, entire tribe. And they're all hiding out at this natural rock formation in the wilderness. While their women, their children, and everything they own, all of it is gone. And the rest of Israel, those very same men who just finished killing the Benjaminite men, women, children, livestock, homes, cities. Those very same men are now coming to grips with what they've just done. As chapter 21 begins, we'll start with the first seven verses. Now the men of Israel had sworn at Mizpah, None of us shall give his daughter in marriage to Benjamin. And the people came to Bethel and sat there till evening before God. And they lifted up their voices and wept bitterly. And they said, O Lord, the God of Israel, why has this happened in Israel that today there should be one tribe lacking in Israel? Are you kidding me? And the next day the people rose early and built there an altar and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. And the people of Israel said, 
which of all the tribes of Israel did not come up in the assembly of the Lord? For they had taken a great oath concerning him who did not come up to the Lord at Mizpah, saying, He shall surely be put to death. And the people of Israel had compassion for Benjamin their brother and said, One tribe is cut off from Israel this day. What shall we do for wives for those who are left, since we've sworn by the Lord that we will not give them any of our daughters for wives? So no sooner has the battle ended that the very people who just wiped out all but a remnant of the tribe of Benjamin are now crying out to God, why has this happened in Israel that today there should be one tribe lacking in Israel? Wow, it's breathtaking, isn't it? It reminds me of our culture today. We throw God out of our public institutions. We tear down the visual reminders of his word. We forbid people to teach his history as our history. We mock those who stand for righteousness and we endorse every possible deviation from his truth that we can come up with. And then when something bad happens, the very same people cry out, how could a loving God allow something like this to happen? This is what the Israelites were doing, the same thing. It's what happens when you have passion without principle. When you're absolutely committed to a cause that is not anchored in the word of God, you end up with confusion. The Israelites uh, couldn't understand how things had gotten so far out of control even though it had happened by their own hand. They personally slaughtered all of the women and children of the tribe of Benjamin, but instead of returning to God's word, going before him at the Ark of the Covenant at Bethel, where they happened to be, and repenting and renewing their commitment to God as they just done back in chapter 20, verse 26, instead they build a new altar and offer burnt offerings and peace offerings right after pointing their finger at God and asking him how he could allow this to happen. So yes, they're weeping, but their weeping is not a cry for help as we've seen in times past. Their weeping here is a lament over what they've lost, almost an entire tribe by their own hand, and yet they don't even recognize who is responsible. They cannot see their own culpability for what has just happened. The Israelites at this point are operating out of a profound sense of confusion. Now obviously, they had some understanding of God's word because they know to offer sacrifices to him. So clearly, there's some awareness of his word, probably what they'd heard from others, what had been passed down from a previous generations, and yet the way they tried to apply God's word, his covenant word to their own mishandling of their own tribes, and their attitude toward God in the process in light of their own sin, it would almost be comical if it wasn't so terribly sad. And what is so telling here is God's response to his people when they mishandle his word, when they openly defy his principles and then blame him when it doesn't go the way they wanted it to. Back in chapter 20, verse 26, when the Israelites approached God in brokenness and true repentance and they honored his word and worshiped him before the Ark of the Covenant at Bethel, God told them what to do next and he promised them victory in the coming battle they were about to face. Here, however, after using God's word to try and justify the slaughter of thousands of innocent women and children, after taking his word as license to justify their own sin, they come before God with anguish and accusation because they're now feeling the effects of their own sin and they want answers from God. 
And God's response is silence. Because he told them what to do. And he gave them his word. And they chose to defy his word. They chose to twist his word. They chose to act far beyond the principles of his word. And now they're feeling the effects of those choices. And instead of repenting and worshiping God, they demand that he explain himself to them. And his response is silence because God doesn't owe them an explanation for the choices they've made all on their own. And so in that silence, which should have really been a wake-up call to the Israelites, instead of repenting and returning to God, they begin trying to come up with new ideas on their own on how to remedy this terrible tragedy. And as we'll see, uh, the situation goes from bad to worse. They begin asking the question, which of all the tribes of Israel did not come up in the assembly to the Lord? For they'd taken a great oath concerning him who did not come up to the Lord to Mizpah, saying, he shall surely be put to death. In other words, the only way the tribe of Benjamin can continue to exist is if the other 12 tribes come up with a way to provide wives for the 600 remaining Benjaminites who all happen to be men. And of course, the problem is everyone who came up to Mizpah to make war on the, on the Benjaminites, they swore a really stupid oath that they would never give any of their daughters to anyone from the tribe a Benjamin, only to be topped by an even more stupid oath which said that anyone from Israel who did not come up to Mizpah to make war against the Benjaminites would be put to death. Now look, uh, in the Old Testament law given to God's people, there were specific laws known as causistic laws or, or case laws which were proscriptions. They were condemnations for all sorts of crimes and their capital offenses, which we find in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 27 and also in Leviticus chapter 20. And if you read the phrase, he shall surely be put to death in this oath that the Israelites are referencing in verse 5. If you read that in the ancient Hebrew, that phrase is directly patterned after the formal death sentences in the causistic laws. So the Israelites are trying to use God's word to justify what they're about to do to yet another group of Israelites, which we'll see in a moment. The problem is the causistic laws in Deuteronomy 27 and Leviticus 20 address very specific crimes, most of which are sexual in nature, and none of which address anything close to this oath taken by God's people against other Israelites who did not come up to Bethel to join in this war against the Benjaminites. And so yet again, the Israelites are completely misapplying God's word to try and justify their current course of action. They're using God's word to justify their own sinful behavior, twisting it to serve their own agenda. And so instead of repenting for making such foolish oaths to begin with, instead of repenting for applying carom to their fellow Israelites, instead of repenting and seeking God for his word and for his direction, they take matters into their own hands once again because they're really passionate about saving this tribe of Benjamin, whatever it takes. And what ensues is complete confusion, which leads to even greater sin. Because passion without principle breeds confusion. Right? The most deeply confused Christians that I know personally, honestly, when it comes to their faith and what they believe, 
those who tend to express actually the most confusion about where they should stand on issues today or what their convictions should lead them to do in this world or what they should be representing. They're consistently those who are the least familiar with the word of God, often by their own admission. They might spend time uh, reading books from contemporary authors and speakers. They listen to uh, podcasts and follow blogs from popular authors and even listen to different preachers, which is all well and good, by the way. Actually, I like to do all of that too. But if the majority of your time and passion isn't spent focusing on the word of God itself and what he is actually saying to you in his word, if you, if you spend more time listening to people talk about the word of God than you do listening to the word of God itself, then you're probably going to struggle with confusion in your spiritual life a lot because there are a lot of different people saying a lot of different things about God's will for this world and for his people. The Israelites at this point in our story, they had some knowledge of the word of God, but they spent far more time allowing themselves to be influenced by the Canaanite culture around them than they did by God's own word for them. And the result was tremendous spiritual confusion, which led to bad decisions, which affected, of course, not only their own lives, but the lives of everyone around them. Okay? Listen, you cannot reasonably expect to understand the will of God if you do not reasonably understand the word of God. And passion, no matter how much of it you have, will never be a substitute for time spent in his word gaining understanding. You cannot neglect the word of God in your life and expect to have a clear understanding of who he actually is and why he put you here on this earth to begin with. A true understanding, the clarity that is needed to navigate this life according to his will, ultimately that only comes from the word of God. Okay, I, uh, listen, I, I read commentaries on the Bible. I read new books on theology. I read really old books on theology too. I read the writings of the early church fathers. I read ancient texts about the scriptures and I read some of the newest stuff out there. I love it. The fact is, I invest time reading all kinds of books about the word of God. But not nearly as much time not even close to as much time as I invest reading the Word of God itself. Because that is where the answers are. Everything else is just man's best attempts at offering insight into his Word. Now look, that doesn't mean we should completely ignore, of course, or discount the value of uh, books and resources and teachings about the Bible for understanding God's word better. Surely not. The apostle Paul wrote that God gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine by human cunning by craftiness in deceitful schemes I mean obviously God would not have given us teachers if we didn't need them 
right? Those who teach God's word to us are a gift from God for the purpose of helping all of us to understand his word better so that we mature in the fullness of Christ. So I'm not saying we should ignore what people are teaching concerning God's word. I'm simply saying that should never replace time spent one-on-one with the scriptures, allowing the Holy Spirit to reveal his word to you directly. If you're wondering which resources outside of the Bible are worth investing time into, well, the answer comes from the statement I just made. If you spend enough time in the word of God yourself, then when you read a commentary or listen to a podcast or a sermon, you will know whether or not it agrees with the word of God because of the significant time you've spent personally reading and studying and praying through the word of God. That is how you gain understanding. Yet a fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his own opinion. The truth is, The single most common response that I get from folks who reject certain portions of scripture as being relevant for today, when I ask them why they feel that way, the most common response is something along the lines of the fact that they're not personally comfortable with those passages. They don't like the way it makes them feel. It's disagreeable with their own personal sense of what is good or bad or right or wrong or it goes against their own idea maybe of who God is. So they seek out teachers and commentators and authors who agree with them, who interpret those passages in ways that make them feel about, uh, better about what the Bible actually says. In other words, I'm good with Christianity as long as it doesn't make me feel uncomfortable. C.S. Lewis once said, I didn't go to religion to make me happy. I always knew a bottle of port would do that. If you want a religion to make you feel really comfortable, I certainly don't recommend Christianity. (laughs) The Word of God will not always make you feel comfortable, not by a long shot. But it will give you very clear principles to live by, which aren't always easy or comfortable to follow. But listen to me, they will never lead you into confusion. Only the words of men can do that. Let's keep reading. Verses 8 through 15. And they said, What one is there of the tribes of Israel that did not come up to the Lord at Mizpah? And behold, no one had come to the camp from Jabesh Gilead to the assembly. For when the people were mustered, behold, not one of the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead was there. So the congregation sent 12,000 of their bravest men there and commanded them, Go and strike the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead with the edge of the sword, also the women and the little ones. This is what you shall do. Every male and every woman that has lain with the male you shall devote to destruction. And they found among the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead 400 young virgins who had not known a man by lying with him. And they brought them to the camp at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan. Then the whole congregation sent word to the people of Benjamin who were at the rock of Rimmon and proclaimed peace to them. And Benjamin returned at that time and they gave them the women whom they had saved alive out of the women of Jabesh Gilead. But they were not enough for them. The people had compassion on Benjamin because the Lord had made a breach in the tribes of Israel. And so the Israelites fulfill one of their vows in order to circumvent the other. 
right? They discover the absence of anyone from the city of Jabesh Gilead among the fighting men. So they send 12,000 of their best soldiers to once again exercise carom over yet another group of Israelites in order to try and fix the disaster that they caused by exercising carom over the first group of Israelites which they see as necessary in order to try and fix the inevitable extinction of the tribe of Benjamin, which they caused when they decided to kill all of the Benjaminite 